I was just thinking about charity or just helping people on a communal level. Communal level. Um, you know, because our idea of it is, is really out there now. And, you know, maybe it's a product of just a larger society where the networks that once existed don't exist anymore, not to the extent they once did. Because um, that's what a community is. I'm teaching you what a community is. But a community is just, it's its a network. It's not just people who live in the same place. It's a network that connects them all. And, uh, you know, you think about like someone who's in need or, or had something bad happen to them. And in a true community, people know about that without that person telling them. You know, part of it's gossip. It's just what people talk about. People like to talk about people. People need to talk about people. People should talk about people. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's in a true community, like if a family, if a dad gets fired and the family's going to lose their house, like he doesn't need to go stand on a street corner with a sign because the people who could and are most likely to help him and help the family, like they're going to know about that already. Like they're going to know about that organically. And yeah, people aren't always generous, but being part of a community makes people more generous. Because people are more generous with people they feel connected to, obviously. Obviously. Like a parent is often more generous with their kid. And then you have parents who are stingy and don't give their kids anything. You know, you, you have people of all kinds. But when you think about like people who are truly generous, you know, some of the, the most generosity you'll ever see is from a parent to their kid. Um, there's a reason why saying someone's spoiled is almost always about like a parent and a kid. Um, so like, like, and then, you know, you, you, that's, you know, and it's also the strongest connection you can possibly have. You know, the strongest connection that somebody can possibly have is to their child. So it makes sense that they would be more likely to be generous with them. And then, you know, the next level of connection is, you know, friends, other family members. And then the next level of connection is friends of friends. And then from there, it's the community. And what, and what is the community? What is like a truly tight knit community? Well, everybody's at least friends of friends, even if they don't like each other, they're still friends of friends. They are relatives of friends. And so, you know, I, I think in that scenario, people are more likely to want to help. Because, you know, helping someone, even though you shouldn't think this way, but helping someone's an investment. And you're more likely to want to invest in, you know, someone who has at least some connection to you. But you, you know, enlarge and basically destroy a community when you urbanize it. And of course, it's in urban 
settings that you are more often to see people begging. You know, you're more likely to see people begging. And, you know, in recent years, too, we've seen this thing where there's, like, pleas for help online. And by plea for help, I, just, I mean, like, actual, like, pleas for actual material help. Like, GoFundMe. Um, just people who use social media, like, hey, I, I really need to pay for this. Oh, man, this happened to me. Donations, please. Um... So, you know, that's that's begging, too. Doesn't mean people should or shouldn't do it. It's not a judgment. I'm just saying, like, that is begging. Like, when you start a GoFundMe or ask people for money on social media or something or, like, seeking help, like, you are that person on the street corner with a sign. You know, you're doing the same thing. And so I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we see that in cities where there's very little community and there's too many people. And we also see it online where, for one, there's too many people, but communities become very abstracted. Like community online, I, I don't know, there's this idea, like you can see it in the way that the word community has been used the last number of years, where community is used to refer to people who have the same interests, basically. Like our idea of a modern community, like when it's when it's used as broadly as it is, it's basically built around people who just have the same exact interest in something. And like you could say that about a, a true community, like the community you actually live in, that yeah, you all have the, the same specific interest in something, which is what? Like living. Living and living peacefully. You know, I think I think it's much different. Like, yeah, you, you can say that any community is unified over something, but there's a big difference between like a, a local community, the people in a town who are unified over their desire to have a decent quality of life and just to live versus like the modern idea of a community that's like we all are fans of this one anime character from our favorite anime movie. And that's a community now. I mean, you see that you see it used just for everything like true crime community. That's actually a, a term. If you read about true crime online there, there are people who identify as part of the, the TCC, they call it, they even accurate, they even acronymize it. Acronymize. They even turn it into an acronym. I'm, I'm part of the TCC. Because I, 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 the reason I even know that is because obviously, you know, I read about true crime sometimes. And I, uh, I, I started to see that places. Like members of the TCC. And I was like, am I supposed to know what the fuck that is? I thought they were saying trench coat mafia or something at first. Because people really love acronyms. Like, if you read about Columbine, you'll see where people are like, the TCM. The TCM. And that it's short for trench coat mafia. And then I started to see TCC. And I was like, what is that? Are you talking about the TCM or the TCC? And I found out, oh, it's short for true crime community. And people talk about that like it's a real thing. 
like that's something tangible to them and i and i guess it is but it's much different like being unified over your interest in true crime makes you a much different type of community from just a true community where it's basically like hey you know none of us are going to do the same exact things like none of us are going to be into the same exact things you know community doesn't depend on everybody having the same niche interest in common it doesn't you know it doesn't mean everybody's the same profession it doesn't mean everybody relates at all You know, it doesn't. It, it, you know, you don't have to relate to people to be part of a community. It doesn't mean like you all like each other and it's a party. Um, it, it means that like everyone plays a role, basically. And because of that, too, like that just that means the, that people in a a true community, they're they're connected not based on you know something superficial it's like they're they're connected because it's like everybody has a role and serves a purpose and everybody is within several degrees of each other i'm not saying everybody has to know each other by any means uh, but they're more likely to know each other i mean i think about when i grew up and i didn't think of it this way at the time like living in Kirkland Washington a suburb of Seattle I didn't really think about it this way at the time but I you know as I get older and I'm completely disconnected from Kirkland talk to very very few people from that time in my life not not even by choice it's just kind of how it went um, but like I look back on childhood and I'm like oh yeah you know that was a community you know, the community wasn't the whole town, maybe. But there was certainly a community, not even just in, like, the schools I went to, but, like, a pretty big radius around those. You know, school was kind of at the heart of it. You know, school was what really formed this community above all else, is the fact that, like, these kids, their siblings... You know, they're all intertwined on multiple levels. Their parents get to know each other. Sometimes their parents already know each other. Sometimes the parents grew up in that town themselves and went to the same schools. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a community in the sense that it's like, oh, and uh, Joe's dad's the local baker. Eric's dad makes cheese, which he did, ran a cheese company. Um and, uh, you know, Mike's dad's the, the cop. You know, it wasn't like that, where it was like every, like we were a community in the sense that it's like everybody has a role. But it was like this, this tight network of people where you had the people you were close to. But you also knew people they were close to. And sometimes even like people, you know, it, it just, it fans out from there. And you're not that far removed from really anybody. I would say in about half of the entire city of Kirkland, that was in network. But then it, it, it ended up like reaching out to different places too. You know, like you knew people in Bellevue. There, was the, there were these networks of people. And... 
I don't remember anybody being in a position where they ever needed that much help. You know, Kirkland was, uh, you know, an affluent, and the affluence was just rising. I mean, at one point, it was just kind of a working-class town. Like, when my parents grew up there, it was just a working-class town, you know, in the shadow of Seattle. But, you know, you know, by the 90s, it was, like, rapidly gaining affluence. And then in the 2010s, like, we really saw that just go full-on. Um, but you know, most people I knew were middle to middle up, uh, middle to mid upper class. I didn't know any truly rich people. Like maybe there were, like there were a couple kids where they're like, "Oh, he's the rich kid." They're rich. And when I look back, like one of those kids, like his dad ran a printing company, and they had a two story house with a really good view. But so did I. Like we had, like my parents bought this like, just you know, old falling apart house when they got married, and then remodeled it. And at that time, it was just, you know, Kirkland was not a, a destination for anybody. It was still a pretty humble town. And then you know, years later, twenty years later, we have a two story house with a view in a really desirable hot place hot and so like this kid who was who was considered the rich kid like when i look at like the the way he actually lived his life like they did have more money than in you know anybody else i knew and his dad was no doubt a millionaire i have no doubt his dad was a millionaire of some kind not a multi-millionaire and the the signifiers of, of their wealth like I said, it was like a two-story house with a view. It was a nice house, but I don't remember it being like utterly massive. It wasn't like a McMansion-sized house or anything like that. It was honestly just it was just a nice house that was two stories and had a, a good view of the lake. And uh, like he was spoiled. The kid was spoiled, as many kids I knew were. And he did, he did seem to be, like, spoiled in a way that was, like, you know, a little bit more than anybody else you knew. Uh, but, like, you know, his parents were divorced, and his, I went to his mom's house, too, a few times. And she just lived in a, a very standard middle-class house. I mean, granted, they were divorced, but, like, I knew the dad very well. He was an amazing guy. You know, considering he was the rich guy in this community... Just a really fucking awesome guy. Bruce was his name. Um, really cool to me. Really cool to everybody. And he did do some rich guy things. Like, I played football with his son a couple years. And, you know, during, like, the height of summer practice where it's like you can't, you're not even, you're not playing games yet. So you're just, you're practicing, like, twice a day sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's fucking hot. It's August. You're out of shape. These are the first practices of summer. Games haven't started, so like you don't, you're not looking forward to Friday night every every uh, you know every week because that's what keeps you going. Is like what keeps you going to practice, which was five days a week. You know, football practice during the school year, you know, the fall was five days a week or four days a week, and then you play a game on Friday. And, uh, 
so this was like the hell of summer and i remember like one day after practice like unannounced that kid's dad bruce pulled up in his jeep cherokee which is you know the it was like it was like one of the sleek you know new designs for cheap jeep cherokee like it was like a new jeep cherokee and it was black black but it's like that wasn't like a super rich guy car like oh uh, his dad bruce is really rich he drives a jeep cherokee <laughs> you know it's like yeah he he obviously had enough money like it says something to be able to just to like buy a brand new jeep cherokee i guess like it does say you're doing all right but it's not a luxury car, you know. It's not like it's not like, oh my God, did you see? His dad drives. His dad drives a Jeep Cherokee, you know. So, but he anyway, he pulled up to practice at the end of just this hellish August day, and he had bought a Slurpee for every single guy on the team. He had just like the, like like he he had gotten like tons of cup holders, from Seven Eleven. And think about how long that took. Like, not just the money, not just like transporting like all of these drink holders filled with Slurpees. Like, I remember he pulled up and the doors opened and like his entire car was filled with Slurpees. I'm not even kidding. It was an amazing, it was an amazing sight. It's an amazing sight. And, and you know how happy like we had just gotten through football practice. Like, you're just covered in sweat and pain, and you have a slurpee waiting for you and it's this magical surprise like a jeep cherokee pulls up and gives you slurpees just fucking beautiful um so that, you know that would that's kind of like the extent though of like rich guy like one time for his son's birthday the dad took like me the son and another friend out to a um like a nice steakhouse in seattle in the city where his dad often went so yeah, he he was the rich guy. He liked to go to a nice steakhouse in Seattle. He bought Slurpees for the whole team, loaded up his Jeep Cherokee, lived in, an, in a two-story house with a view. You know, and he would donate, you know, he would donate to the school. Like he did do things that like other families weren't doing. Like none of the, like my family and like none of the families I knew were in a position to like donate money to the school. And like have your name put on something like he did do that kind of thing a couple times he was a very generous guy um but i guess my point is i just got going on this like rant about kirkland um like within our network like within our community he was like the upper side of upper class and even though he he was able to like be more generous in those ways and he, you know, rightfully had a reputation as like the richest guy around. When I actually look at like him compared to people who were just like standard middle class in the same community, it's not that crazy. Like later in life, I did meet somebody who was like truly from the wealthy classes. You know, I, I, I met somebody who was from something closer to that at the very least. And like just hearing about like some of the things they did as a kid were so different, you know, so different than like what was considered rich where I grew up. You know, it's like a lot of the families would go on one vacation a year. 
like my mom would usually take us somewhere seemed like we would often go on trips like during midwinter break which i think is in february but she'd usually like take us somewhere once a year we'd fly somewhere usually california like one year when i was really young we went to florida um we often did things though that were like intri- like like my mom liked to take us places where we'd like see historic sites and go to museums like we never took like a vacation to the beach or anything like that and like even if we went to a place with a beach we didn't just like go hang out on the beach and there's nothing wrong with that but like a lot of the families i knew i would say most of them were also like one vacation a year type families and they would go to hawaii and you know just the beach like there was this like huge like group of rotating people like some of the same ones went every year but there was like this big group of families who would all go to hawaii during midwinter break and they would just hang out on the beach go in the water the parents would drink and they they came back wearing like carlos and charlie shirts like you know you could always like see like what they were like it's funny like you go and do something and then like the day you come back you wear some like remnant of that like some uh memorabilia i remember like i think people they either went to uh hawaii or mexico i don't know i don't know where carlos and charlie's is based i know that's like a a chain like they have those in like tons of resort towns. So I don't know if this was in Hawaii or Mexico or where it was, but like this one year I remember like all these kids came back from their Hawaii trip wearing like Carlos and Charlie stuff, which like I don't even know what that place is. I, I have no fucking idea. I've never aside from Florida, I've never been to a tropical place. And in Florida we didn't do really that tropical of things. We'd just never been that type of family. Like I might like I remember going swimming in a pool in Florida. I think we I don't I don't I remember we went to a beach and like collected all these like tiny little shells. But I don't remember ever in Florida going to a beach and just lounging on a beach towel or hanging out in the sun. We just didn't do that. Um but the, this big group of other families every year would go and they'd come back with all these Hawaii stories like oh you know like uh, when Joel you know did this at the hotel and you know it's fun I think those kids probably just had the most fun I never remember feeling like envious of it there was definitely like a strong like uh, you missed out on something vibe to it but for me personally, like it was, it was never something that I wanted to do. Like go, go to some island where I'm stuck with a bunch of the people that I see every day, every week, and just lounge around. Like that's not something that is e- even remotely attractive to me. Like hanging out on a beach is cool for like twenty minutes. It's like going to a, like the way I feel about the beach is it's all like going to a baseball game where I really like the sport of baseball. And by that, I mean like the rules, like how it's played. I really like it. I like that it's very statistical too, but the stats aren't very complicated. It's not like football, you know, obviously my favorite sport is football, 
But it's not like football where like this. I love the stats. Baby, I love the stats. Um, but in football, it's so fucking complicated. Like even when you simplify it as much as you possibly can, football stats are complicated. There's a lot of columns. For one player, there's a lot of columns just with the bare essential stats. And then you get into today, today's world where there's like, I don't even know what these stats are. Like the amount of stats, and they're talked about all the time too. It's not like this is just something like nerds look up online. Like they bring this shit up, like the announcers bring it up now and stuff. And it's like weird percentages and it's just gotten really bizarre. But baseball is very simple. The stats are very simple. I'm sure like a true baseball fan would be like, no, they're not. There's this, 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 and this. It's probably true. But in terms of just like the way the game is played, it's very simple. Football is not that simple. But I love it. I love the rules of baseball. And every time I go to a baseball game, which has gotten rarer and rarer throughout my life, I've been to a couple ML, ML, MLB, MLB. I've gone, I think I've gone to a couple MLB games as an adult. I've been to a minor league game. Been to, to at least a few professional baseball games or semi-professional baseball games as an adult. And every time I go though, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be amazing. This is gonna be awesome. I get my hopes up. Because it is really fun to watch baseball. Like I've never identified with baseball culture Baseball was never important to me. Like, I played t-ball, and then I quit basically as soon as I could. You know, I played a few years, like two or three years. But I lost interest really quickly. I didn't, like, quit mid-season. I've never never once that I quit a team mid-season. Like, I, I quit my last... Like, my last year of football, when I was in high school, I quit during the summer. I went to the summer practices, like, most of them. And then right before they were going to do camp, like I went to the two-a-days and everything, and then there was this thing they, they only started to do in high school where all the football players like go to a camp for a week in another part of the state, and like they sleep in dormitories and just like do football shit during the day. And like I, I just never wanted to do that. You know, what that reminded me of was like, it's like when you hear like, since the time I was a kid, like people will tell you like, oh, just wait until you're 30. Every time you get a physical, the doctor starts sticking his finger down your ass. A prostate exam. Like you always heard growing up, like as a, as a boy, like once you reach age 30 or 40, whatever it is, like the doctor starts sticking his finger in your ass. That's kind of how I felt about the idea of football camp. Like as someone who loved football and planned to just keep playing, you know, my, I, I never considered, that's the weird thing. Like I had this football coach, it was the first year I ever played football, I think in fourth grade. First year I played tackle football was fourth grade. And I remember the, like at the, at the end, like the, the team party, you always have a team party. I remember the coach was like, this is a guy, he was giving a speech and he, and he was like, this is a guy who, lives, eats, and breathes football. He's like, I think this kid thinks about football when he sleeps. He said that about me. And it was true. Like, I was just fucking obsessed. 
You know, I wasn't emotional. I was never an emotional player. I never got like excited. I never really got mad. I was just very serious about it. I just really, I just loved everything about it. I loved the mechanics of it. I loved like the way football players look, like what they're wearing, like the uniform. I loved like the, what it felt like to be at a game. I loved the way people talked about it. I never felt that way about baseball though. Like I didn't hate baseball, but it's like, I, I never really like people who are like, take me out to the ball, you know, all that shit just never made sense to me. And then every time I go to a baseball game though, I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be awesome. Even though I'm not a baseball fan, like I don't, to me, I don't, I don't relate to baseball fans. Like the rituals and traditions of baseball fans like mean nothing to me. But in terms of like the mechanics of the sport, I really like it. And then, you know, I keep trying to make this point. Um, I think I, I finally will here is that every time I go to a baseball game, though, I just I build it up. Because I like what it is. And it feels amazing to walk out into a stadium and see like the how green the fucking field is. Like even if it's AstroTurf, it's just like this surreal experience and like that Coliseum experience of like you walk through the aisle to go to your seats and like now you see the open stadium and it's fucking massive and curls curves around. It's out of this world. And so that happens. I go to a baseball game and I get that feeling. And it starts and I'm loving it. And then like three innings go by and I'm just like, this need, this thing needs to be fucking over. This thing needs to be over. I, I want to go home. I can watch it for, you know, a few innings. And I know that like, you know, there's a lot more drama and like the fun of it is the it goes on for nine or more innings. And that's where like the drama comes in and baseball drama is amazing it's just that it's it's way it's a slow burn you know once in a once in a while there's a baseball game where it like is just beat after beat after beat but it's like usually almost always baseball is just this very slow burn and the drama is few and far between and you're just kind of waiting everything about it is slow Everything, every single thing about it is slow and long. And every single time, and this this actually goes back to when I was a kid too, because once in a while we'd go to Mariners games in the 90s, the, mid, the early to mid 90s. My family never took me to a Mariners game, but I went like other families took me a bunch of times. Like I went to a birthday at a Mariners game once. You know, so it was like other people I knew would invite me. And so I'd go with them. My family just, we didn't go to baseball games. It's true for my dad, grandpa, like all the male relatives. Like none of us cared much about baseball. Like my dad would watch it. My dad will watch like any sports on TV. My grandpa, my grandpa, I think was the one who liked baseball the most. Like I would go over to his house and we'd watch the Mariners when they were in the playoffs and stuff. But uh, with... um. 
yeah, that period of Mariners though, like going to those games was huge. Like Ken Griffey, um, Tino Rodriguez, Edward Rodriguez, um, Joey Cora, all the guys were household names. Like I never memorized the names of baseball players, but like I, I could have told you the names of most of the Mariners players then. You were seeing like some serious heavyweights. And it was a really good team. They never won the World Series, but that was a really good team. It was a team of superstars. Jay Buhner. Jay Buhner. A lot of guys. Randy Johnson. Fuck. Randy Johnson. How is he not the first name I mentioned? The Big Unit. That was his nickname. The Big Unit. And just to have this guy who's like six foot seven. I think he might be six foot nine. I'm gonna use a lifeline. I'm curious, if I, like after all these years, because I don't think about baseball ever. I want to see if I have his height right. I was thinking he was six seven, but then like something just clicked in my brain. I was like, I think he might be six nine. Randy Johnson height. Randy Johnson. Let me see here. It's taking me a while to type. It's a slow burn. This, this life. Six foot ten. See? I, I was getting there. I, I knew it was something ridiculous. I was thinking six nine at the end there. But you can see that me amending my six foot seven, I was heading I was heading in the right direction. Six foot ten. So like you go to these Mariners games and you're this little boy and like the, this team is is well. What? Jesus oh, no. Christ. It, she, she must... um, these, um, you know, you're seeing these these people who are already larger than life. These Mariners, all star superstars, all star superstars, super all stars, and like there in the center of the field on the pitcher's mound is Randy Johnson. He's six foot ten. He has this mullet. But it's like a very, it just kind of worked for him. But he has this, this distinct mullet. He has a mustache. He's, he's like very strong looking, but thin. Like what he always looked like to me was like a big stork. Like this big, like athletic stork. Very like sober, dead-eyed, like just kind of... Like, you never saw any expression from him. But everybody knew he was, you know, one of the best pitchers in the league, that he's just this enigma. But even back then, even back then, like, I would go to those Mariners games where you're going to see Griffey hit a home run. You're going to see Randy Johnson strike people out. I would still, like be bored after three innings if that I'm giving myself three innings even if it was five or six because that's actually usually how I felt like I, I obviously I could watch baseball for longer than three innings and stay interested but like I think they call it the seven inning stretch like because I never even knew that stuff like every single baseball game I've ever been to when they do the seventh inning stretch I'm like what's this what's going on and then someone I'm with who cares about baseball is always like, it's the seventh inning stretch. 
idiot. Uh, but like by the seventh inning stretch, I'm like, they should just they should just end the game at seven innings. And that'd be sacrilege to a baseball fan, but I don't care. They change my favorite fucking sport left and right whenever they want. They, they, they tweak the NFL around like all the fucking time. Change rules. Change the number of games in a season. Change this. Like they fuck with the NFL constantly. I don't think they've done that with baseball. Like, when's the last time they just, like, changed... I'm sure that a baseball fan, again, could tell me, like, all the times in the last year or five years where they changed a rule or fucked with things, but they don't fuck with it nearly as much as they do football. And a lot of it's because, like, football's so violent, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, even those games, like, it was just, like, by the seventh inning, like, I'm, I am well ready to go home. Like, I didn't even make it to the... Like, I wanted to go home earlier, but, like, I can make it to the seventh inning. And uh, and then part of the dread of that is that there's no time limit. You know, like, why that's a problem is there's no time limit, obviously. There's nothing to stop it. And that's what's cool about it, too, but it's not cool when you don't want to spend all day and all night at a baseball game. Like, it is nice that in football, this isn't meant to be like, football's better, let's compare football and baseball. You know, this isn't meant to be that, but it's just what I know. Like, the sports I'm most familiar with are football and baseball. I mean, basketball, I I am, obviously I know enough about uh, basketball but basketball is like the simplest of it all you know there's not a lot to understand about basketball like anybody can watch basketball and like just explain to them that like oh a three-pointer if they stand outside of that area it's they get an extra point when they score oh you you can only like dribble the ball like once or twice whatever it is you know, you can't carry the ball, basically. Very simple. Other than that, just, like, shoot this, try to get this thing in that basket and stop the other one. And, like, I sound like one of those people who just hates sports. Like, it's just sports ball. They're just shooting the thing in a hole. Um, but basketball is that simple. Um you know, so baseball, though, it's like next to football, I feel like it's the one I understand the most. Yet there's still just like a ton of things that I don't get. And uh, I just can't watch it for very long. And I guess what I was going to say is like comparing them, you know, with football, though, it's like even with all the timeouts and commercials and everything, like when you sit down even at home just to watch a game, you have a pretty good idea of how long it's going to be. For one, you can see where the time is at at any given moment. Like, even if you factor in commercials, timeouts, whatever else slows a game down, like, you can see, like, oh, there's 12 minutes left in the game. In real time, like, in reality, that's going to be at least a half hour or 40 minutes. And if there's overtime, I could be here for a while longer. But it's like you still see it ticking down. You can still measure it. And even though, like, games get extended, you know, games or football games can be very slow sometimes. Like, two teams, like, just 
stopping the clock play after play trying to conserve time like as everybody knows like the final minute in an NFL game can be like 20 minutes um but it's like you at least can kind of measure it like and you, you can kind of count on it literally count on it but with baseball it's just kind of like well we don't know and again I, I do see the beauty in that but seeing the beauty in it doesn't mean that I can commit to it. It, it, it baseball actually gives me severe anxiety I'm not one to claim anxiety yeah you know I'm not oh it gives me anxiety you know I'm not one of those people so when I say baseball games give me anxiety I mean it not anxiety over the outcome. Like football gives me anxiety because I care about the outcome. I care about my team winning. But baseball gives me just like general existential anxiety because I just start thinking about how much I want to go home. After a certain amount of time, despite liking what the sport is, I just think like this is too fucking long and I want to go home. And it, because like every time I've gone to a baseball game, it's been like, with somebody who probably drove and insisted on going like I'm at their mercy as far as like when to leave and oftentimes I've been to baseball games where like someone it gets to be like the seventh inning and they're like you guys just want to go home it's like yeah but you're kind of at the driver's mercy where it's just like you know like I'm I've been ready for a while or you do that passive thing, that passive-aggressive sort of thing, where you're like, whenever you want to go, just let me know. Whenever you want to go is fine with me. You don't just say, hey, do you want to go? You're like, oh, hey, like, you know, when, whenever you decide you want to go, like, what that means is, let's go. But you have to be the one to make the decision. That's how baseball is. It's just anxiety. And uh, as I going to say, um, long talk about baseball here. I don't know if I've really talked this much about baseball in here. A lot of baseball. Um, community. I mean, this was originally about a sense of community. I guess to tie it back to that, <laughs> to tie it back to that, um, that rich guy that I knew. I don't even know how it got... For a while there, I thought I was just doing a baseball episode. How did I get into baseball? Like, one one connection I know exists is uh, the rich guy. One of the other things that made him seem rich to people is that he had, like, a den in his house. Like, pretty much just his hangout area. Like, a lounge area with, like, a TV and a nice couch or something but the walls were decorated with signed sports memorabilia it's like oh here's Bo Jackson's signed jersey oh here's like a, a glossy photo of Jerry Rice and it's signed oh here's like so and so's baseball jersey and it's signed like that stuff was worth money especially in like the memorabilia hungry 90s in the this is going to be worth something someday 90s like the it's the i've talked about this on here before but like the the 90s were filled with this like that's going to be worth something 
If you save that, it's going to be worth something. Like it culminated in Beanie Babies. And Beanie Babies is always used as the example, but it was truly like everything. Baseball cards, pogs, um, ticket stubs from a baseball game. Like I remember saving ticket stubs from baseball games, Mariners games that I went to, not just to for the nostalgia of like remembering it, like remember when I went to this game, here's a ticket stub. Maybe a little bit for that, but also because I had this idea that these are going to be worth something. And I even got a Mariners ticket stub signed by Jay Buhner outside of a game. I ended up selling that on eBay like a year or two ago for peanuts. I think I might have gotten like 10 or 15 bucks for it. Maybe. But at the time, you were like, this is going to be worth something. And you didn't even think about how you were going to sell it. Like, you would hold on to things like that. And you never thought like, oh, well, like, this is going to be worth something and I'll sell it where? I'll go to a memorabilia shop. Those existed. But they didn't like sell just random ticket stubs. Like maybe if it was signed by somebody like historic. But it's like every kid who got his ticket stub signed by, you know, an above average baseball player. Like they're not all going to be selling their ticket stubs to the local trading card store and they're going to put it behind glass or something. But you were convinced like everything had like a variant. Like it happened with comics where they started to do like special edition comics where like the first issue of the relaunch of X-Men is going to have a fold out cover and, you know, Spider-Man number 100, the amazing Spider-Man number 100, it's going to have a metallic cover. It's going to have like an embossed silver color co- cover. A silver color cover. Say silver color cover ten times fast. Um, you know, and like I had those. Like I got them when they came out for just normal comic prices. But I had those. And they're, they're worth nothing. At the time, it was like, oh, you got that. Oh, man. Like the, the Amazing Spider-Man issue, blah, blah. With a silver cover. And it was hyped that way. Like, companies were like, limited edition. Like, and that's the thing, too. They put it in your head. It wasn't just that it looked special. It was that, like, they would announce those things as, like, limited edition. But they made, like, hundreds of thousands of them. By limited edition, they meant they didn't make a million. But everybody could still get it. Everybody still had it. And now it's worth nothing. Just tons of stuff like that. And, and a lot of sports memorabilia felt that way, too. Like, oh, this is... And because there were examples of like everybody knew about like the Hank Aaron rookie card or something like someone got a billion billion dollars for it. And, and then to be fair too, like things were more collectible. Like there was a a market before the '90s for stuff like that, and you could make a lot of money. Like I'm sure collectibles were already an industry before the '90s. Like I know they were. But the idea of like this this bubble where it was like everything's gonna be worth something, everything's limited edition. Like at one point, like I, I remember everything was that way. Every single thing was limited edition. 
there was all this hype that like this is a collector's item like these manufactured collector's items got huge like whereas in previous generations there were collector's items but they were legitimate collector's items they were organic collector's items everything wasn't like limited mcdonald's cup oh they they released a phantom menace in the theaters so like mcdonald's is making like a limited edition cup with like the different star wars characters like the Darth Maul mug is the Darth Maul, the Darth Maul cup is like really gonna be worth something. Oh, the, the Darth Maul cup is more rare. It's gonna be worth something. Some of that stuff like did end up worth something, but most of it didn't. You can barely get a penny for it. Like that was when the big trading card bubble grew to just an enormous size, size and just pop. I can't talk. Uh, an enormous size and just popped. You know, unless a card's really special and like you get it sent to the the whatever that place is that great like the graders. Like in order to sell trading cards for any money today, you have to send it to like some lab in Ohio, where they analyze it under a microscope, put it in a bag, and put a number on it. But even if you have that card and it's in like amazing condition, it's in perfect condition, you can see that it's in perfect condition, like you're going to get 25 cents for it. And I think in a way, though, the whole like great, like, like grading thing, the fact that like this entire industry formed of like companies who just grade collectibles, you know, it's not just trading cards, it's like any kind of collectible. These companies like put it in a bag and stamp a number on it. It's a 9.8. Oh, because it's a 9.8 and not a 9.7, you're going to get a billion more dollars for it. Um, it, it. This entire industry formed around that, but in some way, I think that actually increased the value of these things. You know, because if, if there wasn't this need to have them graded for them to be worth anything, they just wouldn't be worth anything because there were too many of them. You know, they, they were mass-produced. Collectibles were mass-produced, and they were made non-collectible. So in a, way, in a way, like, even though it's, like, kind of obnoxious, that, like, oh, in order to sell my trading cards for any money, I have to have these guys in a lab give it a rating. Um, it's actually, like, probably made those things more valuable, since not everybody's going to do that. And it, it changes the game a little bit where it's like now it's like you can quantify like the condition of a card, not just like mint, near mint, good, not just like the classic rating system, which is just totally subjective. Like, yeah, people, people kind of know what they're talking about when they say like mint, near mint, all that. People do it with records. But it's like this grading system, like, gave people a way to quantify it. Like, it changed the game of collecting. So now you're after specific numbers. I'm after a 9.9 uh, Mickey Mantle. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's happened with records, too. I mean... I guess, yeah, I mean, it has. Because what I'm talking about is money here. And, like, 
it, it's in some ways made records much more valuable and inflated the costs that you know there the online industry exists for example like the fact that you know pretty much all use record sales now i mean obviously people still buy records in stores but like the majority of like desirable used records are sold online and the the fact that they're sold online you know especially when they're limited like increases i don't even know why i'm talking about this this is an interesting uh again i'm straying from community like i started I got back to community by talking about like the rich guy from my hometown and his memorabilia collection. And the reason I'm even talking about memorabilia, the reason I'm even talking about collectability and shit now is just because like the, like someone who had like a bunch of signed shit by professional athletes, you know, it, it seemed like the coolest thing in the world. And because like we thought that stuff was going to be worth like, a trillion dollars and I'm sure all that stuff is like I'm sure I'm sure like especially when a guy's dead or if it's like from his heyday or something like I'm not saying sports memorabilia isn't worth anything today but it's just like this extra importance was placed on it they were like magical artifacts like that I think that's the best comparison like you went to this kid's um, dad's den and he, he would always show his friends even if you'd already been down there, the sun just kind of liked to take you down and like have you take a look at the the magical artifacts. And they were magical. I mean, professional athletes seemed like mad, you know, magician warriors. And this is something like connected to them. Like that's a jersey they wore. That's their signature. Their sigil. That's their sig- sigiler. It's their sigiler. And, uh, you know, so they, that it was like a museum of magical artifacts. Because even though you, even if you went to football games, watch it on TV, it still didn't feel totally real to you. It still felt kind of mythical, at least to me. And so like when you see a jersey signed by Bo Jackson, I don't, I don't remember if there was actually a Bo Jackson jersey there, but it's stuff like that, that era, you know, it's like, wow. And later on in high school, that kid threw a party when his dad was out of town. And these kids were actually, who he didn't know, friends of friends, were trying to steal some of the memorabilia. And he caught them and he got punched in the eye. And he had to wear an eye patch to school for like a week. Not even kidding. But that's kind of what those kids were doing. They're like magical artifacts. Because what are these teenagers going to do with those? Like these aren't master criminals. Like where do they fence that stuff? Like, are they going to go to like the memorabilia shop in the mall and be like, I got this Jersey. I got this. I got this signed photo of Steve Young, you know, are they going to like go into that store and just try to hawk that stuff? Probably, probably not. Like, I think more than like wanting to sell it. I think these kids who were trying to steal it were like, it was like some Indiana Jones thing to them. Like, we're drunk, let's steal the magical artifacts from this house. Let's steal the magical artifacts from this temple. Um, 
you know, one time I brought a Ken Griffey Sr. Like somehow I'd gotten this old Ken Griffey Sr. baseball card. And I don't even know if it was worth anything. Like Ken Griffey Sr. was a, a, a professional player, but I don't think he was a big deal. Like I think he became a big deal. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I think he became a big deal just because Ken Griffey Jr. was so big. Could be totally wrong. Like maybe I feel like King Griffey Senior, if I remember right, it's like he was above average, but he wasn't a superstar. Could be wrong. That's just my memory. Um, but like his card on its own, like aside from his son's name, like I, I doubt that was really worth anything. But it was an old card. Somehow, someone gave it to me or something. I just ended up with it, and I brought it to school once and was showing people. I think it was when Ken Griffey Senior was on the Reds. Pretty sure he was on the Reds at one point. And I was showing people, and then it went missing. And I think I ended up... Somehow it magically made its way back, but I think someone took it. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I think someone took it, and then, like, I made a big deal, and then eventually, like, it magically showed up, that kind of thing. And I think about how stupid it was. Like, granted, I don't. Th that wasn't actually a valuable card. It was just kind of a novelty. Like, I don't think any kids had seen Ken Griffey Sr.'s trading card before. It was just, it seemed like a bigger deal than it was. But what a stupid thing for me to do. Like, bring that to school and, like, show it off. You know, so I'm not surprised, like, some fiend, like, reached into my desk and took it for a little while. But it, was, it felt like a magical artifact or something, though, like a Ken Griffey Sr. card. And they're treated that way. And especially, like, all the hype going into it. You know, because collecting baseball cards was cooler than uh, collecting stamps. But it was one of the older forms of, like, collecting that young men do. Like, when you go back to, like, the 1950s, people collected baseball cards, they collected stamps... And baseball cards are way cooler than stamps. Stamps. And so the hype around it, though, like the hype around like rare baseball cards gave it this almost, um, you know, magical feeling. And there's this element of luck, like someone buys a pack of baseball cards, they don't know what's going to be in them. There's a possibility a rare card will be in there. Like, it's not surprising that all of this, like, perfectly blended in with magic cards, Pokemon cards. You know, it's not surprising that, like, Magic the Gathering became, aside from trading cards, like, the next biggest card thing, what we call a card thing in the 90s, was Magic the Gathering. Because trading cards, baseball cards, comic book hero cards cards of any kind like they always had this kind of allure like this magical allure and memorabilia did in general like when i was in fifth grade i went to an x-files convention and it's crazy to think that that was even possible like this wasn't like x-files con in las vegas and like all the las vegas or all all the x-files fans around the country go to las vegas for this one singular event. Like, this was a traveling X-Files tour. 
it was it was called the X Files convention, but it was like a traveling tour that they had it at Maidenbauer Center in Bellevue, and it was during like the peak of the X Files. It was like you know right before Mulder Mulder's death, where like but it turns out he didn't die, of course. But it was like that season finale where Mulder kills himself. They allude that oh, Mulder just ends up killing himself. It was like it was like that season, and so the X Files was just like flying off. It was like you know it, it, it just couldn't have been bigger. I think I was it, this would have been like ninety seven. And, uh, but it was amazing. It was like this traveling tour and they came to my town. They came to the next town over and we didn't even know it was going to happen. Like my sister and her boyfriend and I, we would watch the X-Files every Sunday. And then like one day we were watching it and they're like, yeah, and coming to Bellevue, Washington is, you know, the X-Files convention. We're like, let's go, let's go. And we did. And they had like set pieces it wasn't a very big room they didn't have a lot of them but they had like this little room with glass cases and they had like maybe clothes from a certain episode they had actual like you know wardrobe and props and things and it was kind of like that it was kind of like you know these are magical artifacts these are magical artifacts uh and uh you know, so like sports memorabilia, very similar. It's like this is something that has touched something far larger than me. This this is a physical object that I almost can't comprehend in the flesh because I associate it with this almost supernatural dreamlike vision called a TV show that I saw it on. Like, they had the flask. There's a flask in an early X-Files episode, and they had that on display. And at the time, I couldn't even remember the episode. And, but seeing the flask, and it shouldn't be surprising that, like, this weird flask, that's like seeing, like, a a jug from ancient Egypt or something. And you know what I bought at the X-Files convention? I bought X-Files trading cards. They were selling X-Files trading cards and I bought some packs. So there you go. So part of the status symbol, I think, in the the community... I I don't know. I was talking about just communities in general and, and how they, you know, make people want to help others. And I think I'll probably end with the original thought. This one all... This really mutated... Um, but one more thing I'll say about memorabilia um, or just um, like status is like at the t- the time and place that I grew up, those were the status symbols. Like if your dad had like a signed football helmet by some professional athlete, it's like that was something you showed your friends. And you, you didn't necessarily think like aside from like maybe the one fa- the one quote-unquote rich guy the one capital r capital g rich guy like other families would have something like that like families would have something cool most of the families you knew had some like artifact they would show you 
And like in one case, it might be like someone's dad has like a signed football helmet. It's like something they collected, something that's rare. And if you went over to the kid's house, they'd like show that to you. And you wouldn't think like, oh, they're rich. You were just like, oh, wow. They were just like, oh, these are ordinary people. And it didn't, you didn't question like why they bought it or, or why they had it. Even if you didn't care about it, even if it wasn't something like you were interested in, because that would happen sometimes where like this family would like show you or a kid would show you this important thing that they keep locked up. Wouldn't want a burglar to get it. You know, they would show that to you and like, you wouldn't give a shit, but you'd understand like what they were doing. You'd understand like, oh, this is an artifact. We have this. Here is our little piece of the immortal right here. I don't remember any families with movie props. <laughs> That's a whole different category. I, I never knew any families who had like a, owned a, a prop from a movie or anything like that. Sports memorabilia was far more accessible. Other things too that I can't really think of, but uh, I don't remember going over to anybody's house and they're like, we have Tom Cruise's cape from Interview with the Vampire on display in Dad's Den. Never remember anything like that. But that kind of separates the truly wealthy from just the comfortable people. Because that's how I would describe my community. It was a community of mostly comfortable people. Different degrees of comfort, but everybody was fairly comfortable, it seemed. Um, and... Uh, uh, what was I going to say about that? Um, but like the most that, that someone had to show you was typically something like that. It's like, here's this important object. Like in my family, like my mom had this uh, ceramic or porcelain. It was porcelain. Is, is, is ceramic also porcelain? I don't know. Uh, it was this porcelain little red riding hood cookie jar about 12, 15 inches high. It was old. And it was on display on like top of our kitchen shelves. Like my mom always had like decorations on top on the tops of the kitchen uh, cabinets. And that was always prominently displayed and my mom would always talk about it. She'd be like, "See that? Like you know, that's extremely rare." And this is pre-internet and she's like, "You know, I got it appraised and it's worth $900. And so we always like treaded carefully around it. And it was like, that's, that's an important object. Not just because it was worth money, but because it was old, it was antique. It was just a strange thing to have, like a little red riding hood uh, cookie jar. And, and to know that like, that's one of the most valuable objects in our house. Like maybe the, one of the single most valuable object, one of them. That's pretty crazy. And then like, you know, that would be pointed out to people who would come to our house, like, see this? And so we all had things like that. And often money was attached to it, but it wasn't just about the money. But truly wealthy people, I don't know. They probably do have Tom Cruise's cape. This is one of the capes Tom Cruise wore during the filming of Interview with a Vampire. 
But as far as helping people goes, like that rich guy from my hometown, I'm just calling him that as a joke, but he was truly known. Like if it was a cartoon, if it was The Simpsons, no, he wasn't Mr. Burns. He wasn't diabolical and he wasn't that wealthy at all. But it's like within our community, within like the relative, you know, income of our community, he was kind of known as the rich guy. He was like the one guy who would donate to things. He was the one dad. Like, there's no other dad who would spend the money or put the effort into buying 50 Slurpees and transporting them to a football field. But this is the kind of guy who did that. Um, and, you know, I think he, he kind of would help the community in that more abstract way. I don't want to say abstract because, you know, he would donate to specific causes and things. Um, but, it, you know, I never heard whether, like, I never heard about him, like, helping a, a family he knew that needed money. He very well might have done that. But I never heard about that. But then again, like, I also rarely heard about any families in my community, like, being in that position. I, I really don't remember. Like, there were certainly people in poverty in Kirkland, like in my schools and stuff, but it was a different network. You know, I don't want to say they were excluded, but they just didn't connect. It was just a different sort of person oftentimes. Like, I had friends and, and people who didn't have much money who were, like, very much in our network, but it's like they they were never, like on the verge of losing everything. They were never in dire straits. It's just like their dad worked a blue collar job, like they lived in a small house and mostly did what they wanted and had what they needed. And you never remember them like falling on really hard times because the dad always worked and maybe the mom worked too and they just did it. Um, so, like, yeah, I can't even think of, like, a scenario offhand where, like, a needy family within our network would have needed that support. So I can't say whether or not somebody would have helped. Um, but I think that you're more likely to in that situation. And, you know, the, the more abstract your idea of the people around you becomes like the more removed you be you you become from the people around you in your environment like the fact that i live in west olympia and not just that i live in a very specific part of west olympia you know not that west olympia is big but i live in a specific you know quadrant and you know i go to the same stores as all these people who live in this same quadrant but I have no connection to them. They're just total strangers. I never see anybody I know. You know, there's like maybe three neighbors who I wave to or they wave at me. You know, even my neighborhood is not a community. You know, even the neighborhood doesn't feel like a community. You have no connection. You don't know who many of those people are. They don't know anybody you know. Whereas the place I grew up, which is, I think is how I got spiraling into baseball and everything, but the place I grew up, it was like you did, like I remember like we had these guys from Florida visiting. There was a summer where there were these two guys from Florida, like teenagers from Florida, and they stayed with some friends of ours 
because they were going to the N- Nintendo camp. Like Nintendo's college was in Redmond, one of the towns next to Kirkland, and it was called Digipen. And they would literally like teach you, it, w- it was college for video games at Nintendo. And it was extremely hard to get in, but they would do these summer camps for teenagers and people would come from all over the country, probably internationally. And uh, these two kids from Florida like stayed at our friend's house like two summers in a row. And I met them and they were fucking awesome. Like they were fucking cool. Like they weren't nerds, like they were obsessed with video games. But they were into cool stuff too. Like I watched the movie, like they came over to our house and they stayed the night at our house one night. And we rented the movie 8mm. And we watched 8mm and it was fucking cool. Nicolas Cage 8mm. It's a movie about a it's snuff film it's a snuff film revenge movie. I love that movie actually. It's ridiculous. Uh, but like they were cool guys and then so like the third summer like we were like why don't you guys stay with us this year and so they stayed with us um and what was my point um but anyway they stayed with us and uh what was my point what the fuck was my point what the fuck something to do with community Oh, I, the whole reason I launched into that uh, is because, like, I remember, like, we were driving around Kirkland. Like, my mom was taking us to Dairy Queen or something. And, like, one of the guys, Pablo was his name, uh, he ended up, like, moving to our area to go to DigiPen as his college. Like, it was hard to get accepted. And he got accepted. And he rented a room for us for a little while. Uh, rented a room from us. But this dude, Pablo, Puerto Rican dude from Florida, who... You know, it was his dream to design video games. And he got accepted at Nintendo's college. But we were driving around and like, you know, I just saw like some, like like an upperclassman who I barely knew, but he had like dated my friend's sister. And he was driving and he like looked over and he did like the chin thing. Like he, he like lifted his chin, like what's up? And I nodded. And I remember like this dude from Florida was like, this is crazy. Like, you know, everybody here. And I'd never really thought about that before. Like, up, up to that point, it was like, I guess, yeah, like, driving down the street in Kirkland, even though it was a big city, like a, a, you know, it, all those suburbs directly outside of Seattle just sprawl into one another. Like, there's a lot of people on the east side of Seattle. You know, like that's a big area with a lot of people, and it, it sprawls into other areas. And, you know, Kirkland has a lot of people milling about all over the town but you know when he said that I was like you know he's right like it is kind of amazing like that I can just drive around Kirkland like, you can just go to Dairy Queen and you're gonna like nod to like this random wigger this guy was a wigger and he's dead now the guy I saw um, but he's like this random wigger driving down the street who's older than I am but he nods at me and I nod back because he dated my friend's sister five years earlier or something when they were 12. I wouldn't talk to that guy. Like, if I saw that guy on the street, like, we wouldn't go up to each other and say a word. The relationship, if you can even call it that, is just, like, if you happen to see each other out in the wild, you, like, tilt your head up. But this guy who lives in, like, Miami... 
There's nothing like that. Like, obviously, he has a community of people, whatever, friends, but it was just very foreign to him, like, going to Kirkland, Washington, which is not a out-of-the-way small town. It's not a podunk town by any means. And that you can just, like, go to the mall. Like, because that would happen all the time, too. Like, you go to the grocery store and, like, someone you know is there. Maybe more than one. You go to Blockbuster, like my friend's mom worked at Blockbuster, so did his cousin. So did this other guy who I went to school with. Like, you go to Blockbuster and like, and it's not just the school thing. It's just kind of everybody. Like, you go to a, a doctor's office and the receptionist is like, oh, Stonefelt. Like, are you related to Roger? And I'm like, it's my uncle. You know, that kind of thing would happen all the time, too. Like my dentist or, or my orthodontist, like he didn't he, he didn't know my family, like he didn't know any of us personally, but like we knew of his family and that they were Scandinavian. And, uh, you know, they knew about my family or something like my first day of high school, the librarian was like, Eric Stonefelt, huh? Like, are you related to so and so and so and so? Didn't your grandpa go to this high school? Like he literally said that. He was like he was like your your parents went to this high school and he's like didn't your grandpa go here too? And which is cool. Like I remember being embarrassed. I was like, "Oh man. The librarian singled me out. He called me out and he's like, "Didn't your grandpa go here too?" Like he knows that. He's not even a friend of my family. And my family isn't, like, a well-known family or anything. Like, they were just humble, quiet Scandinavian people. But it's, like, that's what a community is. It's that, like, that guy went to the same high school a few years later. He knew of the Stonefelt family and, like, knew of our history in the town. And that would happen, too, when I was, like, when I was playing youth football, I'd be on the, you know, because you played through the Boys and Girls Club not through the school at that age. And so you'd be on the same team as kids who didn't go to your school and you didn't know. But like my dad would like hear the last names and he'd be like, oh yeah, Pickerel. That's a real one. Be like, oh, Pickerel. Who's his dad? And, and then he'd find out and be like, oh, his dad's Kim Pickerel. That's his real name. I'm doxing Kim Pickerel. <laughs> Uh, who's probably like 75 now. Um, but uh, my dad would be like, yeah, oh yeah, that's that's uh, so-and-so Pickerel's little brother. I didn't really know him, but uh, you know, I, I'm going to talk to him. You know, So it's like there were things like that happening at all times. And there's something very comforting about that. They, like people have an idea of who your people are and you have an idea of who their people are. And something my dad would always do, and my mom would do it a lot too, is, but because my dad's the actual Scandinavian one, you know, he'd always point out like, oh, he, like, he'd hear like a name of a kid I knew, and he'd be like, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're Germans, Norwegian, Swedes, they're Swedes. My dad was always doing that, he still does it. Like when I went up and visited him a few years ago, like we took my uncle's boat out, and my uncle was pointing out these houses near his house. And he's like, see him? 
Graduated Lake Washington High School in 1964. Swedish. And I'm like, oh, and that to me is really interesting. Like he's saying that guy who lives in the same weird little island community as him went to the same high school all all of us went to earlier and he's Swedish like us. Like, that's fascinating. It's like, see that guy right there? See that house? Class of 1964, Lake Washington. German. He's a German. Like, my dad's side of the family especially, like, always did that. Always pointed out, like, even the European heritage of people. You know, like, people have this idea, like, a white. In America, you're just white. At most, you know, you're Northern European. And yeah, a lot of people know their ancestry. But it's like, oh, if you're white, you're just white. All white people care about is if you're white. Like, no. My dad's side of the family... You know, always pointed out like what kind of white somebody was. Irish. And, you know, you know they're Irish, and I'm that way too. Like all the people I like are that way. Um, white means nothing to me. You know, I'm just like yeah, you know, Scandinavian, and that's interesting information. That's important information to me. But in a community, like, that's kind of what I'm talking about, where it's like, it's not like it was this bro- this multi-generational brother. That's an important part of this, too. Like, when I say community, I don't even mean that these different nodes in the network were close-knit. You know, when my dad, like, would hear a familiar name on my youth football team and find out it was, like, the little brother of a guy he played football with, it wasn't like that meant, like, they were close at any point. It was just things were bound together. Things were intertwined. You know, it, it's it definitely wasn't. Um, it wasn't like oh, I I used to be best friends with his brother. Maybe sometimes that would come up. Like even I, I can think of this kid in kindergarten who was Swedish too. And. A very unique last name, like mine. His his last name was incredibly unique, and even more Scandinavian than mine, more distinctly Scandinavian. And I knew who he was because his dad's first cousin was my dad's best friend growing up. I had never met any of them. Like I never met my dad's childhood best friend. I, we never went to any get-togethers or gatherings, but I, I always knew that last name. Like, in my household, their last name was always used. And my dad, of course, knew the whole family. Um, but, you know, so in kindergarten, there's this kid, and, it, and like I said, his dad's first cousin was my dad's best friend when he was young. But, like, I knew that about this kid. Like, like when I was, and I didn't like this kid. But I knew that about him, and like I afforded him like a certain level of respect, and like I remember bringing it up with him once on the kindergarten playground. Kindergartners had their own playground. It was like these two giant tires you could climb into, and just like a pathetic swing set. Um, kindergartners weren't ready for the regular playground. But I remember like seeing that kid playing, and I was like, "Yeah, you're, you're." I don't. I don't think I even got the relationship right. But it was like, "Yeah, you know my." 
my family knows your uncle uh, Bob and his wife Sally or whatever her name is I think it was Bob and Sally Bob and Sally but I just remember like bringing that up with him and I don't think he I don't think it mattered as much to him because I'm more to this day I'm more interested in things like that Um, but it was a connection it was like there's a connection here in order, in order to have that, like, there does have to be a multi-generational component. Like, not something so incestuous where it's like, you know, my dad married my best friend's mom's sister, and they all, like, have been best friends for generation after generation or generation. Like, the network attaches, like, across people. You know, it's not like a, a DNA helix where it's just like the same people in the same relationships over and over again forever, like a clan. Like that's where that's that's when something becomes a clan. What I'm talking about is like this node in the network like flies across and it attaches to this person and that one attaches to this person. And that's kind of how it was. It was like there were these large strokes to how it was woven together. Large strokes to how it was woven together. And so it, it was something like that, like, oh, that kid in my kindergarten class, like, he's more than just a kid in my kindergarten class, even though I don't like him much. But he's more than just a kid in my kindergarten class because his dad's first cousin was my dad's best friend. Like, the network attaches itself. There's context. Like, that's, that's kind of what it is. There's context for who people are when you're in a true community. It's just, that's all it is. It's, it doesn't mean people are all close. You know, people are always going to have chemistry with different people. They're always going to, you know, some, because that's the thing. is like some people were kind of shut-ins, but still part of the community. Like my dad, perfect example. Like a, a total shut-in, totally isolated from the community, even when he lived in it. But he was still part of the network. There was still context for who he was, and he had context for who everybody else was. And I should add, too, that, like, even when people left the community, they were still connected to the network. Like, they, they were still tapped in. It was still, like, where they came from. I don't feel that myself at all now. You know, I don't feel like I'm any, you know, I've never been a particularly communal person, but I don't feel that at all with my hometown. You know, Facebook has given me, like, some some superficial view into it. But that isn't, you know, it's also warped. It, it, all of it is warped. All of it is warped. But I think in that environment, like, where you do have an actual community... One, charity is going to be more direct, or it should be. You know, people... I don't think they need to be told explicitly that someone's having a hard time to get support of some kind. Like, you don't... I don't think you have to ask as much. I think people tend to know. They know a lot more about you, which you could see as a downside. But because they know more about you, like they know what's going on. 
like the people who live down the street from me like their wife like that guy's wife and kids could die in a car a fiery car wreck and I'm never going to know that like that could have happened yesterday and like I'm never going to know that that's absolutely unheard of in an actual community like you don't need to call people and tell them that happened for them to know and if it's a decent community for them to step in it doesn't have to be that severe even but that's just making an example of something extreme like that could happen to somebody in my neighborhood and unless I talk to the old lady gossip mill I'm not going to know that. I have no context even for who that guy is. I kind of know a little bit about the guy, the old retired cop directly across the street from me. I like him. Keeps to himself. He's probably in his 60s. He has a girlfriend who stays with him sometimes, but after all these years doesn't live with him. He has a son that stays there sometimes, an adult son. I know he's a former cop. I know he's kind of a no-nonsense guy. has a has a thin blue line flag in his garage. Um, but really respect him as a neighbor. He's a great neighbor to have. He's knows his shit. Keeps an eye out. Doesn't bother anybody. I beyond that though, like I know very little about him. And like the lady next door to him, I know her because she knew my mom pretty well. And she talks to me. She'll call me once in a blue moon to let me know something. We exchange neighborly information when needed. Like, really awesome lady. Um, so it's like I feel like a sense of community with her and maybe the guy next door. There's a young guy who bought the house next to me. We're friendly. Like, we say we wave. I don't know anything about him, though. I don't know anything about him. I don't know what he does. I don't know any... Something could happen in his life, and I would have no idea. And he lives directly next door to me. But in a different time and place, and I know this still exists, but in a different time and place, like, I was more tapped into that. Like, maybe some of this is, like, just my own solitude. I have no doubt about that, but... It doesn't really feel like it would be possible even if I sought it out. It doesn't feel like it's around, really. And then, like, people's idea of doing good is very removed, too. Like, yeah, they, they do GoFundMes for someone who needs help moving. But, it you know, it's not... Um, it's, it's, it's not like you really hear about people helping each other that much. Most of the help that people are doing or think they're doing is either like giving to charity, it's something that's been abstracted, or it's like being an activist. You know, it's often one of those. Very rarely is it like somebody actually giving material help to somebody they know or somebody who, they, who knows someone they know. Like, very rarely are, are you helping somebody where you have some kind of context as to who they are. 
But I think there's also the other side of communities. Like I don't mean to make it sound like a, a healthy community is just going to help everybody no matter what. Because I think within a true community, because there is so much context, because because there is such a, an intricate network and there's so much context for like who people are and why they, they are the way they are, um, I think that it can be more unforgiving in some ways too. Like I think about the community I grew up in. Like I said, I don't remember any family falling into dire straits like there were some kids with fucked up home lives you know i i had a single parent but there were some kids with like a single mom and like they're trashy and it was just fucked up and uh you know but they already existed in that like that was that was what they were that was already their life like what i'm talking about here is like i don't remember like any families that were like living a middle-class lifestyle like suddenly falling into dire straits and ever hearing about it like i'm sure some bad turns happened financially to some families and things but i don't remember anything where it was like something devastating but i think living in like a pretty affluent period i mean the, the 90s were just a good time that was a good time to be an american trying to make money and because like the Seattle suburbs were just lush, you know, tons of new companies were starting up there. Like the tech industry was emerging and Seattle was one of the centers and that bled out into other things like that bled out into other industries. It was a really great place to be living at that time. And so I think because of that, though, I think if somebody had fallen on hard times, I think people might have been a little bit unforgiving because it's like, how are you not able to thrive in this? How are you able not to like maintain your balance in this? The times are really good. Like, yeah, like stuff out of your control can happen. But I think that's another aspect of communities is that it's like it's it's different from just seeing a homeless person and being like, oh, my God, like, how could society let this happen? I need to give him a dollar. Versus like the person who has some context for who that homeless guy is. And it's like, oh, yeah. Uh, he came from a fucked up home and didn't really have a chance, but he also turned out very un, you know, mentally ill. And like when his aunt tried to help him, he, uh, you know, lit the place on fire and she had to call the cops. And then, you know, when this person tried to help him, he bit that hand too. You know, that's, that's what community is. Community is like, oh, even if you feel bad for the guy, you might have some context for like who the homeless guy is and why the way he is why why he is the way he is like kirkland didn't have any they had a, they had a few a couple people who lived in their cars they were homeless people but they were pretty rare and you didn't see them around but there was a guy who was the town drunk and in my part of town almost every day you would just see him walking his name was Jeff Johns, which is an amazing name, Jeff Johns. And he was a year older than my dad in high school. And like my dad said that Jeff and like some of the guys he knew in that age group were the very first people at Lake Washington High School to start smoking pot. So this would have been 1965. And so like my dad just remembers like, oh yeah, Johns and those guys, he'd be like Johns. John's and those guys, you know, were the first ones who started smoking pot. And it's probably true. Like in 1965, like 
those specific seniors were probably the very first guys to be like, you know what, we're going to start smoking weed. And then, like, his life, he became, like, the weed dealer. And, like, there was a famous story in, in our family about how Jeff Johns was growing weed in his mom's attic. And the weight got so he- heavy that the ceiling caved in. Because he had a bunch of, like, lights and plants up there. And I, I'm pretty sure my dad bought weed from him before my dad started growing. But Jeff Johns, like, and he would sometimes, like, he would make his rounds. Always red-faced, like, hardcore alcoholic, drunk all day. Drunk all day. Every day. And he wasn't homeless, but he might as well have been. He was definitely the town drunk. I think he inherited his parents' house. Didn't take care of it, but just it was a place for him to sleep. I think he, he might have inherited money or something. I don't know. But he was just the town drunk. And like one time he came to our house and he like, because he would, he would knock on the door and like ask to see my dad. Like even after my parents got divorced, like he didn't remember anything. He, his brain could no longer hold any information. But like even after my parents got divorced and my dad no longer lived there and he, this guy would have known that because he would come by and he'd be like, is Steve here? And my mom would be like, no. And they'd talk for a minute and he'd leave. But there was one time where like he came over and this might have been before I was born, but I heard the story where like he came over and he was like, can I just lay down? And my mom let him like lay down on the couch because he was just drunk. He was just passing out like out of his mind. And but just going over to like his old classmate's house and being like, can I lay down? But you're not like threatened by it. Like you obviously wanted him out of the house, but it wasn't threatening because it was just like, oh, yeah, this guy went to high school with my dad. He's been a burn. He was the original burnout. He grew a bunch of weed, like he grew so much weed that the, the ceiling in his attic collapsed in his mom's house. He, uh, you know, now he just wanders around drunk all day, every day. Uh, but yet he comes to your house and knocks on the door and you're not threatened. You're just like, oh, hey, Jeff. Because you have some, co- he has a context. He knows who you are. Like you have context as to who he is. And this isn't a guy that like anybody was close to. This wasn't like one of my dad's good friends. This is just a guy. Like at most, they it's just they knew each other in high school a little bit and both smoked weed. But that's what a community is too. Um, but like, you just kind of like, you'll regard someone like that. Oh, he's a character. But he's one of our characters. And... You know, if someone was, if he, if that guy were to become homeless or something, I think that our, our family's attitude just would have been like, eh, we, nothing you can do to help him. Like he, you know, that guy could have done a lot of other shit with his life, but he just fucked up at every turn. And, you know, in a, in a true community, like a bound community, even though, like, I think that the, the community will be more direct with their charity I think they'll also be more hands-off with people that they don't think deserve that charity. It'll be like, oh, you know, he really had it made, but he fucked up. Oh, he had every opportunity. Whereas in the world we're in now, it's like I think we're constantly giving charity to people with no idea who they are, why they are, what they are. And, and I think you, you could say that that doesn't matter when it comes to helping people, and that's true in many ways. Um, but you don't really know what you're helping. 
And like many people say, it's like, who knows how much help you're actually even doing when you do that. You know, it's not that you're owed results when you help someone. You know, it's you're in the wrong 100% if you help someone with the expectation that like they're going to do what you want them to do, even if it's what's best for them. Like you're in the wrong if you expect that of them. You help them just because they need help. But it's also, of course, you're going to want a certain outcome for them. It's like when you give $5 to a homeless guy and he immediately buys a crack rock, like my attitude would be once I once I give that money to him, it's his to do what he wants with it. But whether or not I give it to him is going to be based on whether or not I want to buy a guy a crack rock too. Like I'm going to be more reluctant to give a guy $5 if I think it's going to be unproductive. But if I do give him that $5, it's no longer my right to care about what he does with it. Like once that's his, that's his $5. Like I haven't magically encoded that $5 so he can only use it for pet food for his dog. If I give it to him, I hope that's what he's going to use it for. But I have no right to tell him to buy anything other than what he buys with it. So when you help someone, it's the same thing. Like, if you're trying to help someone get sober, you know, you aren't owed that outcome. Like, they, they, that, that person doesn't owe you sobriety. But you're helping them anyway, if you want to help them. Um, but, you know, it's still direct. Like, you still you have context for who that person is. Like, you're not just blindly donating to a charity. You're not just giving money to a random homeless person. You know, because a lot of the charity we see now is, like, so removed from the source that it's just the idea. Oh, this is helping people. Who? How? And... uh it shows you how far we are, how far removed we are from that organic form of community, and instead we have communities based around true crime. You hear about things called the um, you, you hear you hear really abused. You'll you, you'll hear people say the um, what do you call it? Like the uh, the intelligence community. They're talking about the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, the intelligence community. Like, I'm sure there is a community of people who are all involved in that shit. And they have their own small world where, like, only they understand each other. Like, of course. Of course there's going to be some sort of bond between someone who works for the NSA and CIA. And for that matter, their families, their wives. They're going to be able to relate. But the intelligence community... You know, that's so far removed from what an actual community is. And that goes for all of all these things, like fandoms. And the way community is used in all kinds of different ways. With race. The LGBTQ community. They'll just throw that around. And well, there, there is a shape... It is a network, 
but it's it's not a healthy community in the sense that like people are unified by living itself. And that's what makes it different. That's what that's what makes today's interpretation of community very different from what a community is. Um, it's it's something that um, it, it's unified purpose. It's a reason for existing is not just the general well-being of those in the community. It's some sort of niche interest. Like, we all watch Game of Thrones. That's a community. And that's distorted our idea. And I mean, it's, it's not a coincidence that this coincides with organic communities becoming thinner and thinner. Organic communities wasting away, basically. You know, it's not a coincidence that this other form of community has become so popular. The popular use of it. You know, I think those go hand in hand. And this isn't a sermon. This might sound like a sermon, but I'm not a very communal person myself. I'm just not naturally a very communal person. But I see the function of a true community. And it's funny that like something like communism, which is obviously the word is rooted in community, communal. But that it's like uh, communism wants to institutionalize that in the most abstract way. You know, it's like when people look at the Scandinavian healthcare system and they're like, look, Sweden is basically socialist. They have socialized healthcare. And it's like that developed during plagues in like the 1700s or something. That predated communism and socialism and ideas like that. That was just communities of people doing what they did with people who were like them. When there were there were untreated diseases and plagues in you know 1700s Sweden you know, of course, like, people are going to band together and, like, use the network to help people who are affected by that and strengthen their medicine and give people access to medicine. You know, it's not something that came about way later because of communism, because of socialism. It's what people naturally do. I mean, you'll see people do that you'll see those same tendencies in people who preach against communism all day, every day. You'll see, you know, conservatives who live very communal lifestyles, but they absolutely hate communism. Because communism isn't necessarily communal. Like, it abstracts the idea of community out, and, you know, redistributes and distributes things in such a way that it's a perfect example of like having no context like communism is basically removing all context it's like utilizing all of those uh you know communism it's like it's utilizing all of those just um intrinsic tendencies we have 
to help people, to even the playing field, whatever it is. But then it's removing all context from it. And it's abstracting it to hell. You have no relationship to who's being helped. And if you're being helped, they have no relationship to you. And it's not a surprise that that just leads to corruption, as everything does. It's not like communism is more prone to corruption than anything else. But it's like that's only going to lead to corruption. You'll find corruption even within a tightly bound community. But when you abstract the idea of community out and you remove all context, there are no relationships between helper and helped. It's a system. It's an industry. You know, you're basically guaranteeing corruption. And nobody's going to feel that great. Like, at least our system of, of charity in modern America, where it's just like, you donate money to this fund. You have no idea where it goes from there or what it even is, but give money to this. At least you feel good doing it. But in full-blown communism... It doesn't seem like people end up feeling good. It doesn't end up feeling like people even feel charitable. And the results often aren't charitable. Like, not that this needs to be a communism rant. But, you know, the it doesn't seem like anybody ends up feeling good about it. College students in a different country, decades later maybe, start feeling good about it. But on all sides, the people who are there, like, nobody seems to feel that charitable. Even though the idea is that it's like a... When people put on rose-colored glasses, like, even though the idea that they present is this is the ultimate charity. Communism is the ultimate charity. It's the universal charity. But then nobody ends up feeling charitable. Nobody ends up feeling like that system was charitable to them either. Nobody ends up feeling anything except negative. Um, so I think in a true community, which is always going to be smaller in scale, um, there is context. You know, people have more wisdom when it comes to how and when to be charitable. People have to beg less for charity. Um... And I think the result is that people feel much better about their charity. This land is mine. God gave this land. To me, this brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land 
where children can run free.